Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, where are you listening, how are you listening? This is Quantum of History, and I'm your host, Donnie Waldron. Today's going to be episode 14. It's going to be part two of Tomorrow Never Dies. We're going to have a special guest on today. It's going to be Thomas Felix Creighton. He's going to join the, the, the uh, show again today. You heard him on uh, The World Is Not Enough. He's going to be coming back and giving his insights. And like I said, he's got the voice of an angel and the jawline to match. So I'm really excited to ha- have him on here today. I think you guys will uh, really like to hear what he has to say. First of all, I just want to start by thanking everyone that's reached out to me to make sure I'm still alive after uh, the Epstein episode for last week. I just want to make everything very abundantly clear. I am not suicidal. I very much love my life. So if at any point I show up hanging or shot in a car or jump off a bridge or anything like that, it was not suicide. So again, thank you everybody who's reached out, checked on me, giving me my little Clinton update. So I'm good. I'm fine. And I'm also very not, very much not suicidal. So, so yesterday it was fun. We got to, uh, I got to go up to see Bud West at his cigar lounge and uh, dressing like Bond. Bond's Thomas Harris was there, and that uh, tropical Bond came. I just missed him, but it was it was really refreshing to actually have an in-person thing. I've loved these Zoom calls. These guys are a lot of fun. I hope that these continue so that we can get worldwide participation. But it's also there's nothing like actually being in a room with somebody and hanging out and talking boobs. So. It was. Uh, I hope that this is a sign that the rest of 2020 and here on out we can start doing some more in-person events and start coordinating get-togethers. Um, I know that there's groupings. I know there's California groupings. There's a lot of these Northeast guys. Um, so I hope that this is a sign of things to come that we can do the Zoom calls, but we can also start actually getting together and having human interaction again. So I'm looking forward to it. I hope that this continues and and keep a lookout. We're gonna have to keep doing more of these because it was just it was a lot of fun. So without further ado, let's go right into the topic of the day, which is going to be Tomorrow Never Dies. Now, in the last episode, I didn't talk about the movie very much. I just want to get right into the Epstein case, just because it's a really current topic. So it, I think it was good to have Bond and non-Bond fans kind of look at it. So I've had a lot of non-Bond fans actually heard it and give me some good feedback. So now if they stick around for two, now you get, now you get blasted with Bond talk. Let's get right into it. Pierce Brosnan's sophomore attempt at being James Bond, Tomorrow Never Dies. So Tomorrow Never Dies to me is one of those movies that just misses the mark. And if they would have made a couple different decisions and a couple different things would have gone a different way, it would have been an amazing movie. For starters, they wanted Anthony Hopkins to be the main villain. And I think that would have been a huge upgrade over Jonathan Price. To me, Jonathan Price is this theater, Broadway, theatrical. You can tell he's a complete wuss in real life. And I just have, I just can't get behind people or menacing people that are just, they just are cartoonish to me. And I think that Anthony Hopkins really could have brought some, some, some menacing to the actual role, and it would have changed the role. And I love the the storyline so much, the media mogul that controls everything, along with the Hong Kong transfer. Now Raymond Benson in his novel A Zero Minus Ten, he would touch on the topic of the Hong Kong transfer, and he did a much better job exploring that storyline and what the actual implications could be because you've got a capitalist Hong Kong who's scared to go to a communist China that could lead to a lot of things and a lot of corruption involving people who are at the top of capitalism trying to keep on to their holdings and being scared that communism is going to come over and take over it has so many ripe ideas that just aren't executed well 
The second part is going to be Terry Hatcher. To this day, you can even hear in interviews, Brosnan's so mad that they didn't get Monica Bellucci as Paris Carver. And what an upgrade that would have been. I mean, don't get me wrong. When that dress falls and Terry Hatcher's um, derriere is right there on display, it's a fantastic scene. But if that was Monica Bellucci... It changes, it changes the exact dynamic because Monica Bellucci is the quintessential Bond girl. Of anybody who should have been a Bond girl, Monica Bellucci should have been a Bond girl for five movies. She should be the latest to do for four. Like, she is just, she just captivates Bond woman. So I don't, I don't understand how they went, I guess because of the notoriety, because Terry Hatcher was the hot commodity at the time. But wow, what a downgrade I, I feel like that they could have had Monica Bellucci as Bond's long lost forever, she's the one. Because that I buy. Terry Hatcher doing Desperate Housewives. and I mean, they're real and they're spectacular. I get it. But eh, it's I just can't buy her as, as the one true love. So those are the two things. And then I think uh, when Michelle Yeoh, I think, is fantastic as a action person, as a, another agent. They shouldn't have tried to make her a love interest because it just does, it comes off as forced. There's no chemistry between Brosnan and Yeoh. That is a completely forced romantic dynamic and they should have just kept Monica Bellucci should have been Paris Carver she should have been there the entire movie she should have been the love interest in the big Bond girl and Michelle Yeoh should have been an agent and should have been kicking ass and should have done whatever if in in the henchman boy they really missed on the henchman Thumper again what what Thumper was terrible and then the magic card guy again if you're gonna have like I, I like the idea of a guy who's like a genius and all that stuff and they touch on it later but Again, you just you just miscast that entire movie to me. The one that people dog on a lot is Dr. Kaufman say that he's ridiculous. I, for one, love Dr. Kaufman. And it's my favorite line of all the movies to quote is, I could shoot you from Stuttgart. I love using that and interjecting this into normal everyday conversation. And nobody ever gets it. And I think the joke's hilarious. And I laugh myself. And I'm, everyone in the room is weirded out. But I want to keep doing it because it's funny to me. And I like saying, I could get you from Stuttgart. So this is the best, that's one of the best lines. And everybody who, who doesn't like Dr. Kaufman, you're wrong. And if you don't like Dr. Kaufman, when you're talking to people, having a normal conversation and interject, a Stuttgart, you know what? It's your own personal fun time. So if we have one of these bond events, I want to hang out with people who actually get the joke and get the brilliance of my jokes. You know, even Brosnan, I think that's his weakest Brosnan performance. Maybe, maybe it's between that and Die Another Day, of course, but... Even in Die Another Day, I don't think that he's that bad. I think that the, he just has nothing to work with. And Tomorrow Never Dies, same thing. He has nothing to work with. He has no other characters, no other actors to really plead off of to help him with his performance. And I think it's something that plagues the, the Brosnan era after Goldeneye is that they kept they did Denise Richards, Terry Hatcher, and Halle Berry as their Bond girls. And it just it doesn't, it doesn't give Brosnan much to work with. And the villains, too, just... It just, I, I don't know. I just feel like they missed the mark on so many things about Tomorrow Never Dies, even though the foundation is there for an amazing James Bond movie. So I really hope that they revisit this. I hope that at another point we get a storyline that goes along the lines of Tomorrow Never Dies. So Tomorrow Never Dies touches upon it, but they don't actually delve into the complexity of what the Hong Kong transfer was. Because the Hong Kong is very, it's a very complicated and it's a very unique story in, in history. So the transition from Hong Kong to China to Britain to back to China is a fascinating one on many different fronts. To understand how this came about, you have to go back to the Opium Wars that occurred in China during the 19th century. Now, the Opium Wars were a series of two wars that came about for access to Chinese ports for opium smugglers. 
In the late 1700s, the British East India Company started to smuggle large amounts of opium from India to China. Around 1820, the demand for the opium exponentially grew. The effect was felt by China both socially and economically, and also culturally, as addiction to opiates grew. Now, initially, opium was used medicinally, and it was ingested, but around the 18th century, opium started being smoked, and that caused an entire different reaction to the drug. Now, smugglers quickly found that the sale of opium was a lucrative business. China was especially prone to this, whereas the drug had become enormously popular. From 1820 to near 1839, smugglers were bringing in around 30,000 chests of opium a year. Now, political pressure came within China to stop opium from coming into the ports, and the Duanggong Emperor of the Linjiao was appointed to special imperial commission to end the opium trade going on in the Chinese ports. Opium had long been illegal in China, but it was common practice for British trading companies to bring in large amounts of opium and to have Chinese smugglers transport them out to the sale. The job that Lin was tasked was to stop this practice. Now, British companies at the time had grown reliant on the trade as the sale of tea to China had fallen from India. It was imperative for the survival of these British trading companies to keep the flow of opium going. Now, Lin ordered the seizure of all opium being warehoused in Canton, later known as Guangzhou, and to form a blockade to prevent foreign ships from entering the port. Now, altogether, the Chinese seized 20,000 chests of opium, approximately 1.3 tons, worth nearly 2 billion pounds from British traders. Now, if this was today, that value would be 208 billion pounds worth of opium that was seized and then destroyed by the Lins. Now, I don't know how accurate that is, again, I, but I found it on multiple resources, and I did the conversion chart of how much opium was back then, how much it would be worth now with inflation. So I, I found it consistent with multiple sources. So, But again, that seems like a lot to me. But yeah, $208 billion or, 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 or British pounds worth of opium was destroyed by the Lin, uh, by Lin at that time. So, needless to say, Britain was not happy. So the events that transpired in Canton were relayed back to Great Britain. And upon hearing the news, Britain sent warships to Pearl River in order to break the blockades. British fleet was quickly able to defeat the Chinese blockades. The Chinese tried to put on an offensive that too was quickly quelled by the British Royal Navy. When the, when the British were first feeling out China, the mystery of Chinese capabilities kept conflict at bay. But as Britain began to test China, it became clear that the Chinese were no match for the British Navy. Emboldened by their vast superiority on water, Britain charged down the Pearl River and dominated the Chinese in battle. As a result of the crippling defeat, the Chinese were forced to cede to a completely one-sided treaty. This treaty was named the Treaty of Nanking, and it's still to this day talked of as an embarrassment for the Chinese. Now, The Treaty of Nanking set out several parameters for peace. The first priority of the China was to open their ports to Britain. Prior to this, Kohong and their 13 factories owned and controlled all the port activity in the area. This treaty made it so that not only would Canton be open, but three additional ports, including Shanghai, would be open for merchants to trade for whoever they chose. Britain were also able to set up consulates in the area who would be able to speak with Chinese officials directly. The only thing that the Chinese won in this treaty was that they were able to tax the, uh, the, the, trade, the goods that were coming in. Now, the second part of the treaty was reparations for the damage done by the destruction of $208 billion worth of opium. The government had to pay $6 million silver dollars, $3 million for debts owed to merchants, $12 million for war reparations, an additional $12 million to be paid, different payments over three years, and if it wasn't paid over the three years, there was a punitive 5% interest rate for late payment. China was to release all prisoners and give amnesty to Chinese that assisted the British in the war. In response, Britain would pull out their troops from the occupation. Finally, Hong Kong was to be a British colony. Hong Kong was to be placed where British traders could rest and tend to their ships and down their ships. Strategically, Hong Kong is located in an important geographical location between Macau and Shenzhen, 
with access to the Pearl River that leads deep into the southeast section of China. Now, all of these victories in the treaty were viewed as an enormous humiliation for China and its empire. Now, after the First Opium War, the Americans and the French, along with other nations, sought to take advantage of the economic opportunities in China. The defeat of the, of the Chinese was so overwhelming that other nations took notice. China was pressured again to give huge sessions to these trading partners, in addition to opening their ports to foreigners. As time passed and the Treaty of Nanking became less and less willing to adhere to the terms, as a result, tensions were growing. Before these opium wars, if a foreign company wished to trade with China, they had to do something called a tribute system. A nation would have to bring a gift for the emperor and acknowledge that him and the Chinese culture was far superior to that of their own. It was called kowtowing. And they would have to go and basically gravel before the emperor in order for him to open access to their nation. Now, neighboring countries yielded, but European nations did not. Instead, they insisted on treaties and business deals rather than gifts and subservience. The devastating loss to Britain and sessions made as a result of such an embarrassment for the emperor that he felt that he had to stop following the terms of the deal. France, America, and Britain were now all fighting to get preferred nation status and access to ports. They all had formed their own treaties with, with China, and these treaties were about to expire soon. Now, in 1856, Chinese marines seized a cargo ship called the Arrow on suspicion of piracy. All parties aboard were arrested, including Chinese crew members. So before this incident, the Arrow actually had been confiscated as a pirate ship, and it was. But after being seized, it was sold to the British company and then designated as such. When Chinese marines saw the ship, they seized it, took members, and took down the Union Jack from the ship. The British consul, in response, demanded all crew members be released, as well as an apology for taking down the Union Jack, as it was seen as an ultimate disrespect. Nine of the crew members were released, and three were kept, and no apology was issued. Word got back to the Crown, who sent up back up to Canton to quell this, this rebellion. On their way to Canton, though, the Indian Rebellion happened, and ships were diverted to India to take care of that, as India took precedence. Britain tried to recruit the U.S. and Russia to join the fight, but they refused at the time. Eventually, the French agreed to charge on China with Britain after the Indian Rebellion was quelled. Britain invaded and bombed Canton. Britain once again won and captured the man in charge named Yi, and they take him to exile where he died of starvation. Britain and France stayed in the captured areas as the U.S. and Russia joined the spoils. Each of these nations took a piece of China for their own interest, and the, the, the Chinese government was weaker than ever. Britain was able to further expand their Hong Kong colony to the Kowloon province, and in 1898, a convention in Beijing in Hong Kong's territory was expanded further to be referred to as the New Territories. British representatives agreed to a 99-year lease, rent-free, because it was assumed that 99 years would be a formality and that Hong Kong would never go back to China. They'd always be a British colony. The British ruled Hong Kong for a total of 156 years until July 1st, 1997, when Hong Kong was handed over to China in an elaborate celebration. The turnover was done with the promise that China would keep a one-country-two-system approach to ruling Hong Kong. In 1984, in Beijing, Margaret Thatcher and Deng Xiaoping agreed to terms of the handover to take place in 1997, and the main staple was that Hong Kong would remain autonomous and they would stay a democracy. Hong Kong was key in being a conduit to the Western world, to China, and the need to stay open. Though China has remained fairly true to the agreement, in 2019 major protests erupted over the first major overstepping of China and Hong Kong. In 2019, a law was introduced that would allow the extradition of Hong Kong citizens to mainland China. Now the fear was that they would target journalists and political activists. Students went to the streets, they protested to keep their freedoms. Now, Hong Kong enjoys the freedom of free media, free enterprise, and autonomy. The fear of this proposed law was that it would put freedoms at risk, 
Most of the population view themselves as Hong Kong citizens, not Chinese. They have enjoyed years of creating their own culture, identity, and economy as separate from Chinese rule. So when you think about extradition, you think about bad people doing bad things being brought to serve justice. But Hong Kong knows China, and their fear is that journalists, free media, and their overall freedoms will be ex- will be infringed upon because China can go and grab a journalist because it's against Chinese law. Or if you protest, you can be brought back to mainland China. And once you're on mainland China, that you're not, you know, you're not getting out. So that's that was the that was the big fear in uh, Hong Kong more than anything is that they wanted to keep the extradition. They didn't want China to reach their tentacles inside of Hong Kong more than they already are. So to help sort all this out and to kind of give more perspective rather than just me talking about it all the time, I'm going to bring in my good friend Thomas Felix Creighton from Flubbing Never Dies to come in and elaborate more about China, Hong Kong, and all the complexities that goes on there. All right, welcome back, Thomas Felix Creighton. You know him from all the Bond events. You know him, you love him. The sound of an angel, the jawline to prove it. So welcome back, Thomas. I'm so glad you're here to come here back on the show. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. (laughs) I enjoyed it so much last time. (laughs) All right. Well, I tell you, I can't tell you how many people have come back and be like, the world is not enough is my favorite episode to this day. So, and it was my only my fifth one. So it's not me. It's got to be you. So, <laughs> <laughs> I prepared long and hard for that by specifically living in Turkey for seven years. So, uh, I'm a little less prepared. I've only lived in China for five years, but I've done it just for this podcast. Uh, <laughs> so I hope it works. <laughs> well, I'm excited to have you on today. Today we're going to be doing Tomorrow Never Dies. As far as a Bond film, what do you think? Honestly, it's one of my favorites. I mean, my Instagram handle is Fleming Never Dies, and that's taken really from the from the title of the film. Uh, I'd say it's my go-to as the the classic Bond film, the one that's got absolutely everything. For a lot of people, I know that's Goldfinger, but maybe just being younger, I really go to Tomorrow Never Dies as as it, the one I really love. Yeah, it's, it's weird. People, it's one of those movies that people either love or, or hate it, and uh, I don't know. It, <laughs> it hasn't grown on me quite, but it's all the Brosnans. I feel like. <laughs> With everything that's going on, the Brosnans are becoming more and more my beloved film. So, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. They're just light and fun, right? I mean, it's... Th- uh, that's what it is. You know, it's, <laughs> exactly. If you can't dual-wield machine guns while running in a submarine, then what, what are we here for, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Well, I know, like I said, you, you've been living in China, so you definitely have a, a really unique perspective on what we're going to talk about today with the Hong Kong tra- transfer, and I know you're well-versed in it, so... You know, it started with the opium wars, and, and what do you think about how everything transpired and the goals of Britain and, and how everything went down? It was interesting. The opium wars has been like been studied again and again, and uh, the American president John Quincy Adams had an interesting perspective on it, and he was saying that the opium wars was genuinely nothing to do with opium. Um, <laughs> he was saying it's to do with the, the Chinese demand for a Western product. So there's a huge trade imbalance. Like China was very happy to sell, or rather. The, the Qing Empire was very happy to sell and sell anything to the Western world, but didn't really want anything coming in. This led to a huge trade imbalance that most countries didn't find acceptable. So for the British, it was opium that was the main demand within their empire. And had it been, say, the US with cotton or France with, with wine or any other stereotypical product, there would probably have been a conflict along the same line because China refused to recognize other countries as, as equal. Hmm. Um, so they demanded a, a kowtow. 
they demanded that your ambassador should go to the emperor, get on his knees, bow down to his forehead, touch the floor, get up, and then repeat the process as many times as possible before being given absolutely anything. Absolutely. So the emperors of China saw themselves as, you know, the emperors of everything under the sky, um, which to their historic experience was largely true, that they had had great civilizations in what we now consider China that expanded out. Um, the, the former British Foreign Secretary, William Hague, actually wrote an interesting piece in The Telegraph on this last weekend saying that, you know, China was an empire. You know, if you Google uh, Chinese empire map, and you'll see some great videos of expansion and contraction, expansion and contraction. It was an aggressive, expanding empire, as the Mongols, the Tibetans, and all their neighbors know. Um, so this idea that it had been kind of a peaceful country by itself until it came along is, is really quite wrong. Right. And I, I think that it was interesting, too, is, is when I looked at how the Opium Wars ended and, and how basically they were just demolished by the British Navy in, in the ports and almost like... A, you sit there and you talk about how the emperors thought that they were really the, the God's gift to everything. And then to be hum humbled like that, I thought that was really interesting how that must have, I bet you there's still to this day in China, bitter stories about that. There are, there are. Now, I mean, one of the interesting things is the Chinese emperor didn't send his best men. Uh, his best men were quelling internal rebellions. So the Qing empire was already praying at the edges. Um, so they didn't view the Europeans as any kind of real threat. Mm -hmm. And actually continued to regard this as some kind of a fluke. So we have the first Opium War, then the second Opium War, the Arrow War, uh, and all kinds of kind of conflicts that carry on afterwards. The Qing Empire just was very, very slow to realize that they were not the greatest thing on earth. <laughs> Something I have a problem with myself. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Don't we all? <laughs> so you, you, I know you've been traveled a lot through there. What are, what are the importance of Hong Kong and where it sits as far as geographically? Well, it stands at the, the mouth of the Pearl River Delta. Uh, so the Pearl River is one of the great rivers of China. And any time you find a great river, you find a civilization, you find a great city, you find life. Um, so in this little, little river delta, you have Macau, Hong Kong, Guangzhou, used to be known as Canton City. You've got these huge cities. I mean, the city I live in, Shenzhen, is on the Pearl Delta, and it's a, a small city of 14 million people. Um, <laughs> this is a little suburb, really. <laughs> well, it is kind of a suburb of Hong Kong. That's crazy. It does kind of continue on, yeah, just with this, this huge border between us, actually. Um, but yeah, this is a, it's a huge production. So all those things that you might see as made in China, a huge amount of it would be made just a little bit inland of where I am, and it would be sent out either through Hong Kong, traditionally, uh, and now there's a larger port on the mainland, uh, one of China's deepest uh, deep water ports. Um, so yeah, this is a manufacturing base. It always has. So what, what does it look like aesthetically between Hong Kong and the mainland of China? Is there like a, a difference that you can see between just the aesthetics and how it's built up? Absolutely. So kind of the four cities that I mentioned, Hong Kong, Macau, Guangzhou, and Shenzhen are completely and totally different. Um, so Macau was under the Portuguese and it's got that lovely Mediterranean slightly crumbling but still romantic vibe. Um, it's, a, it's a lovely city. And you see Portuguese written all over the place, you, and you get quite a different language. It's mostly Cantonese and Portuguese mixed in. Uh, Hong Kong is weirdly like London, um, <laughs> almost as if we built it that way. Um, so in fact, <laughs> you ride the metro, and it seems weirdly familiar to the London underground. Um, and even post-1997, the handover, uh, a lot of those same architects who are building things in London also built things in Hong Kong. They have that wonderful mix of kind of old colonial British buildings and modern 
kind of city of London building. Again, it, it looks very much like London, but in a tropical environment. It was it was it was interesting researching how everybody was trying to get a piece. You know, France was trying to get a piece, Russia was trying to get a piece, the U.S. which say Portuguese. All these things. I wonder if in that southern all mouth is it more different in the mouth of China and all that area where it was so heavily foreign influenced as opposed to the rest of it, which maybe is more traditional. Absolutely, yes. So traveling further inland, uh, you hit kind of Guangzhou where foreigners were kept on a little island which is in the middle of the river. Uh, it's not a very big island. You can walk around it uh, end to end in about 15 minutes at its longest stretch. And this is where all the, the foreigners, largely Brits and French, uh, were told to live uh, with some Sikh guards on the bridges. There's only three bridges across and they're closed at night. Um, but the main city itself is very... Cantonese. Um, so there's a big difference, I'd say, between the Cantonese and the, the Mandarin speakers. The city I live in is mostly Mandarin speaking, um, so the classic Ni Hao and Shisha, uh, whereas if you go into the Cantonese speakers, it's Leho and Umgoi. Uh, it's quite different. It's written much the same way, uh, but the language, the sound of them are totally different. Um, when, when you say that the, uh, the bridges are closed at night, can you just kind of elaborate hmm. that? Because I think that's kind of an interesting concept. Oh, sure. So these were the uh, one of the earliest trading ports that uh, non-Chinese were allowed in, the, the barbarians that we are, uh, was in the city of Canton, now Guangzhou. And this is a very small island. It's, it's really, I say, it's just on the river. There's small bridges going over. Um, and I've, I've seen the size of this island measured in tennis courts. <laughs> it is quite small. Um, and so this is where all the tea warehouses and I guess the opium warehouses were. Uh, they're very beautiful old buildings, um, and it's now been turned into quite the tourist spot. Uh, so the old empires of tea have been replaced by Starbucks, um, <laughs> who've gone in very, very sympathetically, actually, and kind of they've kept that old colonial feel in the Starbucks. It, it's it's kind of curious, kind of a modern empire matching on with an old empire in in an even older city. Uh, that's a, that's incredible. Like with with the freedom of movement and stuff, do you find that it's it's is there any more control as far as freedom of movement or bridges or is there lockdowns or do people kind of adhere to everything or what do you, how do you feel about just the overall culture of how people move? Because I always find it interesting, not only how people act, but how people interact with themselves and how they move. I always find that, are they more rigid? Is there control? Or how does that work? So within the cities, people are, have their freedom of movement, but Chinese people have a something called a hukou. So that's your registration to where you're born. And it's considered your, your hometown. So that comes with all kinds of, of rights, um, some responsibilities, but you're registered to your hometown. So moving to another city doesn't make that new city your, your home. Oh, yeah, uh, you, can't be repping, you can't be repping the hood? <laughs> Absolutely. So, <laughs> so you have to, to register. And changing your hukou is a huge effort. So uh, movement is very much controlled within China, and that's even within the kind of main China. You have special autonomous regions. Uh, Hong Kong is one and, and Macau is another. And those are kind of very, very difficult. As a British person, uh, until the current situation, I could very happily move into Hong Kong forward and back because I'm a British citizen and that comes with certain rights. But a Chinese citizen could not. A Chinese citizen has to apply for a visa to go into Hong Kong. Um, and they can only go in, I think, three times before getting a new visa. So it's movement really is very much controlled. Very interesting. I, and you mentioned about how things are changing in in Hong Kong, and I know that since 2019, everything's been changing with the, um, I believe that it was over the over extradition purposes, the laws, but do you think it was something that was built up for a long time as far as tensions, 
or mm. what are your thoughts about the state of Hong Kong now and where you see it going in the future? Yeah, so I'd say that the way that people see themselves mainland in Hong Kong is is very, very different. Um, so there was a poll done recently in Hong Kong asking, do you see yourself as a, as a Chinese person? Uh, would you identify as Chinese or, or Hong Kongese? And 11% said they saw themselves as Chinese, wow. which is a pretty small percentage. Um, over 70% said they considered themselves Hong Kongers. And the really interesting thing is that the younger a person was, the more likely they were to consider themselves as Hong Kongese. Very interesting. As a trend. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you kind of, you identify yourself, and they, like you said, talking about, about being autonomous state, I think Hong Kong exemplifies what they're trying to be with autonomous and the turmoil. And mm. what do you think about their demands that they're asking, or do you see themselves as um, seating or trying to be more away from China as this goes, or are they trying to be more, China's trying to pull them in, or whether they're trying to stay themselves? Because a lot of the handover problems were that they were very worried that China would come over here, and they said, you know, one one nation two um almost you know what is it autonomies or something and do you find that yeah. that's disintegrating or becoming more clear mm. it's an interesting question because when they we signed the agreement with china in what 1984 or five uh, to say that it would be one country but two systems and four years after that nothing happens in Tiananmen square um <laughs> i say that calling you. <laughs> i say that calling you from china um but all of it seemed really distant, right? So in the 1980s, 1997 seemed really distant. And the idea of, you know, Hong Kong fully returning to China is, what, 2047. So again, it's really, really seems distant. Now it seems closer and closer and closer. Um, and I'd say that both sides want Hong Kong to be normal, just want it to be normal. The question is, what is normal? So in Hong Kong, you're open to the world. You can use Facebook and Instagram. You can use WhatsApp. And they're used to Indians coming in, Brits coming in. It, it's a real cosmopolitan city open to the world. In mainland China, there is no Instagram. There is no Facebook. There is no you know, connection with the outside world. There's alternative systems. Uh, you don't get the BBC, for example. It, it's become more and more and more By restrictive. By the way, after, over since, since you said BBC, I still chuckle to this day when you say BBC. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> I'm not going to say the British Broadcasting Corporation every time. <laughs> no, I, I, I enjoy my chuckle every time. As an American, I hear you say BBC. I'm going to, I'm going to keep adding it in. <laughs> I know. Here I am with my juvenile humor interjecting with your intelligent <laughs> soliloquy. So please uh, continue. No. <laughs> oh, I want a new guy in the Navy who complained that uh, we have too many TLAs. <laughs> Three-letter acronym. <laughs> so continue with your yeah, thought I'm so, sorry to interrupt with my, ju uh, sure, sure. my my immaturity there's a huge difference right Hong Kong's so open to the world and China honestly less and less so five years ago you know we could access foreign news services but one by one they've all just slowly disappeared there's no announcement saying this is blocked you just suddenly find oh it, it can't connect um, and so I even heard a local colleague say Foreign websites, I mean, they have a lot of technical problems. Um, <laughs> in China, they're really good. Um, <laughs> so definitely one way of seeing it. Um, but again, as they slowly cut themselves off more and more from the outside world, or, or are cut off more and more from the outside world, uh, I saw that very much, say, June, July last year, as events started in Hong Kong, that in Hong Kong, you could see the international news, you could see the way things were proceeding, but here in the mainland, there was a completely and totally different story. Um, in fact, just living a few miles away, it wasn't on the news. 
And if it was on the news, it was a kind of a footnote that there are terrorists in Hong Kong who just are intent on total chaos. Um, so that's the way it's been reported. That's so, so it's, it's so interesting with with the tomorrow never dies with the media blackout. And I know us over here are dealing with a lot of media craziness too, and uh, it's it's just crazy. Just owning owning media is such owning power. Yeah, and here the media is one thing; it is owned by the government, and that is it. So. One one minor point. I don't know if you've heard of this, uh, the Winnie the Pooh thing. I have not. Do elaborate. <laughs> okay, so a few years ago, somebody hilarious decided that uh, President Xi Jinping rather resembled Winnie the Pooh, <laughs> and <laughs> produced a comparison. Now Barack Obama was president at the time, so it was a while ago, um, and he was said to resemble Tigger, <laughs> and the Chinese president to resemble Eeyore. Um, so this, this this went around a few times. This is not only banned in China, but as a result, every single image of Winnie the Pooh was banned in China. I, I know a few Chinese people who've seen it, and every single one of them says, actually, the Chinese president kind of, it makes him look cute. It's fine. <laughs> we all, they, all call him, they all call him Daddy Xi, which is a rather cute way to call him. Um, this seems like kind of a cute thing by everyone I know who's seen it. But as I say, it's resulted in this being banned because you can't have an alternative narrative, right? So the government has its narrative. That's the narrative. Anything that falls outside that is not okay. All right, last question. You've got a choice. You can either be with Michelle Yeoh or Terry Hatcher. But if you're with Terry Hatcher, Dr. Kaufman has to watch. <laughs> there is a monstrous scenario now. <laughs> were I single, I, I couldn't imagine a scenario where I wouldn't choose Terry Hatcher. But, but I think with that ghastly scenario. <laughs> I can't make the question too easy. No, I think with that, that terrible situation again, where I think I have to go the other way. I, I can't have good old Dr. Kaufman watch. That, that's, that's, what if he started talking? <laughs> no, I kind of want him to cheer me on a little bit. <laughs> Flip it over. Well. I have a minor degree in that. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Thomas, for coming on today. It's always a pleasure. You always, cla- you always class up my uh, podcast, and I always dumb it down with BBC and, and Dr. Kaufman <laughs> watching uh, Fornication. So, <laughs> Hey, this is the reason I listen. <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much buddy and again we're gonna have to keep doing this buddy I'm gonna keep having you on as many times as you'll come on oh thank you thank you I love it <laughs> alright take it easy bud thank you thank you oh. Thank you so much, Thomas Felix Creighton, for coming on today. If you're not following him on IG, it's Fleming Never Dies, one of the best IG pages you could you could follow, not even for Bond fans, just for everybody. So great follow, great dude. Thank you so much for coming on. And as always, hopefully we'll have you on more times. And it's, it's kind of funny. Look at today's, the protests in the U.S. today. It's basically they're trying to give away the fight the freedoms that Hong Kong's trying to fight to keep. And uh, it, it's just the way it is. It's a cycle. Everything goes through. Everything ebbs and flows. And people have short memories and they... They don't realize how history repeats itself. And also, I mean, it's lifetime. People just don't realize that it's in your lifetime when these things happen. It's in so many of the people who are alive today's lifetime that all these things happen, not just some faraway distant time. It's why Tomorrow Never Dies is, to me, is such a huge disappointment. I think I have like 19 on my list. And I do, I enjoy the movie. There is some fun to it. But to me, it's just such an overall waste because, look I mean, you look at between 
the media mogul of the Robert Waxwell influence with a double agent, and, all, and rather than him just being fed as rather than a narcissist, he could actually have been a double agent, and all, all the nuances that could have been with that. In addition to the Hong Kong transfer, which was going to be amazing as far as capitalists being worried for their communists, you could have stretched that. You could have done so much with that. And you take these two topics and you get the underwhelming movie of Tomorrow Never Dies with Terry Hatcher and Jonathan Price. If I look at the movie in and of itself, I think, oh, you know, it's a good movie. But when I really think about what could have been, that's, that's what disappoints me the most about the movie is that it had a foundation and it just missed the mark. And I researched a little bit about the production of Tomorrow Never Dies itself and it was just riddled, riddled with problems. They actually started filming before they even had a script. And you can just tell there's not really much direction the miscast in several aspects and there was just too much going on. There was too much mismanagement going on and Tomorrow Never Dies is gets exactly what we get. So a lot of times when you hear, oh, we want faster movies, we want movies every two years and it's kind of what you get okay, because GoldenEye came out and they tried to quickly crank out Tomorrow Never Dies, then Will Doesn't Enough and then Died Another Day. Just bang, bang, bang. And in modern times, you just can't, you can't get great movies by doing that and I'm it sucks to have to wait five six years for a movie but would you rather have wait five years or four years for a really good movie or two years and get a bunch of crap movies so tomorrow never dies is the exact point of that these things take time and if we could have had four years to work on a script and get it perfect we could have got a classic bond movie instead we got an eh an all right bond movie all right guys thank you so much for stopping in this has been tomorrow never dies part two the hong kong transfer Thanks everyone that stopped in and, or checked in or DM me. Make sure that I'm still good. Make sure the Clintons haven't gotten me yet. So thank you guys for listening in. Follow me on Instagram at Quantum of History. And I'm, I'm starting a webpage and then I've got some more stickers and charts coming out. So thanks everyone who supported. All the love, all the stickers, all the posts, all that stuff. So thank you guys so much. Tune in. We'll be doing more, a bunch more of these. i got more guests, more movies to talk about. And I'll always stay positive. All right? And if you're ever hanging out with me, you need to talk about boobs, crab cakes, and Stuttgart. Stuttgart. Thank you guys so much. Enjoy your day. Stay positive out there.